for those of you tonight who may be suffering from what the psychologists call an inferiority complex, I have the precise therapy for you. Have Dr. Kinlaw introduce you. It will remove the last vestige of any feelings of inferiority you may have. And I appreciate those good words, sir. Many of you are aware that during our chapel services, we have a seating program. Did I say anything funny? I thought I was just, okay. Uh, normally, our, our freshmen sit upstairs. We call that freshman land. And then on my left are the seniors, and on my right are the juniors, and in the middle are the sophomores. And earlier in this year, I noticed a young man sitting about halfway back in the sophomore section, spending more time staring up into freshman land than he did this direction. Every chapel. And I, I knew him, and I, I said to him, well, why do you do that? He said, well, my girlfriend is up there, and it's difficult for me to keep my eyes off her. And I said, young man, that's not what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, set your affection on things above. But he was. I have one word that I am going to use tonight repeatedly. Let me confess at the beginning, I will sound like a bro broken record before I'm finished. But uh, two incidents this past week triggered this word and this idea in my mind. The first was a short article that appeared midweek, I believe, in the USA Today newspaper on the famous elderly preacher Norman Vincent Peale, and who apparently had reached another milestone age in his pilgrimage. And in the article, the author had mentioned that he had asked Vincent Peale, what it was that originally launched him into the power of positive thinking. And Vincent Peale responded and said, if, if I had to trace it to one incident, it would be when, as a very young lad, working on a mathematics assignment, not able to accomplish it successfully, about to throw my hands up in frustration. And my mother came by and said to me, Norman, what's the matter? And he replied, it's this math. I'll never understand it. And I can identify with that. And she said, Norman, 
never say never. Incident number two. I saw one of our students who was about to receive a diploma in the morning earlier in the week, and I said to him, did you really think a few years ago that you'd really make it? And he said, never. And he said to me, Prof, did you ever think I'd make it through your class this term? And I said, never. And by now, no doubt, you have ascertained the word that I'm going to zero in on tonight repeatedly. And for a scripture passage, thank you, let me uh, read from John chapter 13, the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning with verse 1. The incident is a, a very well-known one, and it reads as follows. Let us hear the reading and listen to the reading of the word of the Lord. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garment, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And we will end our reading with the ninth verse of that chapter. If you will take a few minutes to go through the hymnal that's in front of you or the hymnal that you use in your home church, you will find that in many of the greatest hymns, the word never is used. 
And more often than not, when the word never is used, it's describing something that is true about God's nature. Or something about my relationship to God. Uh, let me just remind you of a few of them. President Kinlaw mentioned that one of the hymns that class in the 70s had requested that we sing was, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And here's a couplet out of that famous hymn from Luther. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And he is a bulwark that is never failing. You know this old gospel song, I Will Praise Him, part of which goes as follows, Then God's fire upon the altar of my heart was set aflame. I shall never cease to praise him. Glory to his name. Or a song that we sing on Communion Sunday or around Good Friday, the one that's entitled, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And do you remember this couplet? Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Here's one of my favorite songs on the Holy Spirit. Breathe on me, breath of God, so shall I never die. Or the hymn of invitation, whiter than snow, two lines of which go, to those who have sought you, you never said no. Here's one of my favorites. Do you know the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? There is one stanza in there that I have a little bit of a problem with in terms of public worship. Do you remember that part that goes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love? I would challenge every husband here tonight after the service to sing that part to your wife. I don't know if the clinic is opened or not. But here's a part with which I can identify. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. There's a peace in my heart that the world never gave. I have a song that Jesus gave me. It was sent from heaven above. There never, there never was a sweeter melody. Tis the melody of love. What precious passages. But let's move beyond the hymnal, as important as it is, to something which is even more important, the Word of God, the Scripture. 
And almost every time the Lord Jesus uses the word never, it is an inviting, positive passage. Let me remind you of a few nevers that come to us from the lips of Jesus. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. If anyone keeps my word, Jesus said, he shall never die. After he raised Lazarus from the tomb, Jesus said, Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I think Jill quoted this verse, if I remember correctly, from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, which is really an Old Testament quote, where the Lord says to his people, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But there's one other frightening never. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that in the coming day of judgment, many will stand before me and say, Lord, listen to my brownie points. Listen to the good things that will make you happy to have somebody of my quality on your side. That's a paraphrase. Lord, you do remember that we healed the sick? Yes. And you do remember, don't you, Lord, that, that we have cast out in your name demons? Yes. And, and you do remember, don't you, Lord, that in your name we have prophesied? Yes. And, and you, you certainly do remember, Lord, that, that I preached the fall revival at Asbury. You remember that, don't you, Lord? Yeah, I do. And to these group of people, real or hypothetical, who make these exaggerated claims of self-importance, the Lord says to these people, surprisingly and unexpectedly, depart from me, because I never knew you. A beautiful never, but a frightening never. But almost every time someone else in the Bible uses the word never, there are problems. I have come to the conclusion, my dear friends, that it's terribly dangerous to use the word never when you're talking with the Almighty. A modern Christian writer introduces his devotional writing with the following little catchy phrases. Plate. O hair, 
Field, Chicago, busiest airport in the world. Time, late Friday afternoon, busiest time in the day. See, the American Airlines terminal, the busiest area in the building. Location, Central Concourse, busiest traffic in the terminal. People, free creatures, busiest mouths in the place. Let me give you my own rendition of that, but not quite as catchy. Place, Wilmore, Kentucky. outside of the Betty Morrison apartment across the street at the seminary. Time? 6 a.m., maybe 6.30 a.m. Early June day, 1967. One stubborn Volkswagen, packed and ready to take passengers to Boston. People, one recent seminary graduate, one wife, and Heather, our oldest, who about that stage was two-thirds here. Now, to this very day, my mother and father, who thank the Lord are still living, there are a few people here on my right, I see here tonight, who know them, have never owned an automobile. So, uh, I didn't grow up at that magic age of 16 saying, Dad, could I have the car? My only question is, Dad, could I have the bike? And I thought of all those precious things that my mother and father have missed, like payments for a car and gas and maintenance, insurance. I think it's unfair that they should be cheated out of those privileges. And as a result of that, I was never very mechanically oriented. I think you could put about everything I know about automobile mechanics into the navel of a neck. And when my dear wife and I started to date, she picked me up, and she dropped me off. And she said, honey, if this, we're going to get serious. One thing's going to happen. You're going to have to learn how to drive a car, and I'm in seminary. So she taught me how to drive. She taught me things like wheels and other things like that. She also taught me how to jump start the car. 
with purely driving and eye pushing. Because apparently we had some exposed wires that let in the moisture of the night time and therefore often it would not start in the morning. But on this particular day, it, it would not start. We tried and we tried. Finally, we woke a neighbor up, not deliberately, but inadvertently. He heard us. And he came downstairs and, and he helped us to get started. That's early June 1967. If I remember, that's 21 years ago. Now, I don't remember too many things I said 21 years ago, but this is one thing I do remember, and I will always remember. Now, I grew up in a major metropolitan city, population today around 3 million. My parents lived four blocks, three blocks from the subway. And when I came to Wilmore, I, I wanted to write a book, Can an Inner City Kid Find Happiness in Wilmore? <laughs> and there's one last hope as you go out of Wilmore before you head out towards what we call the wide. And here is my wife in the passenger seat and I driving, and the rest of the Volkswagen filled completely with just about everything that was ours. And I turned to Shirley, and I said this. And this, I believe, almost a verbatim quote of, of what I said back in, in the mid to later 60s. I said, you know, honey, Wilmore's been a great place to come and study for the last four years, but I'd never want to live here, <laughs> at which point one of the members of the Holy Trinity, <laughs> I'm not sure which, took out his little memo pad and said, we'll see about that. And from that point on, I've become extremely cautious about when and where and how and why I will ever use the word never. There were some people in the scripture who loved the word never. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? I don't know who coined that name, but I think we can do much better. I would suggest at least for a partial improvement, not the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the prodigal sons. Do you remember the older brother in the story? The one who did not run away from home. The one who did not waste his life in riotous living. The one who never had to come back home and say, Father, forgive me. 
And as Jesus tells that parable, the older son is out in the field. And all of a sudden, coming from dad's home, music and dancing. And that itself was enough to catch the boy's attention. And when he subsequently finds out that the reason for the party is the return of the dropout runaway son, rather than rejoicing with his dad that his brother has come home, he begins to fume. And he says to his dad, why in the world do you roll out the red carpet for a skunk like that? And then he goes on to remind his father of his own situation. He said, Dad, let me remind you that I've never broken one of your commandments. Underline the word, never. I mean, Lord, I've been here four years and I never got one demerit point. And then that's followed by another never. I never broke one of your laws, and yet you never gave me a party. That's the never of anger. That's the never of resentment. Why do the people who mess up their lives the most seem to get first-class treatment and I've essentially had my act together and I get second-class treatment? Why? Why? But there's one person in particular in the New Testament who had a love affair with the word never. And it was Peter. On three different occasions, Peter used the word never. The first, I read for you a moment ago. At that last supper, the Lord takes out a towel and a basin. And he comes to Peter, probably last, rather than first in the group. And Peter says to Jesus in somewhat astonished fashion, Are you going to wash my feet? And the Lord says, Yes. And then what does Peter respond with? He says, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And the Lord says to Peter, bounce that off me one more time. You will never wash my feet over my dead body. And the Lord says to him, well, have it your own way if you want, Peter. But I want to tell you tonight that if you don't let me wash you, if you don't let me wash you, you're going one way and I'm going another way. And we have no future together. 
And Peter, at that point, got exceedingly desperate, and he said, well, if that's the case, Lord, throw me into the shower. I wonder why Peter was so stubborn and obnoxious. You'll never wash my feet. I think I have a partial answer for that, and it's explained by something that happened in a dormitory a few months ago. I was passing through one of our dormitories, and there was some music coming out, as occasionally there is. You perhaps heard it if you came in New Circle Road on... No, you didn't. And I thought, what would kind of music would come out of a sophisticated, erudite college dormitory? Maybe some classical music. Well, I expect it maybe dun dun dum dun 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 dum But there was no dum dun dum dum Well, maybe maybe some contemporary music, or maybe some Christian contemporary, maybe a little bit of Petra. Maybe a little bit of the altar boys. No, this is this is the music I heard. Won't you be my neighbor? <laughs> and it was Mr. Rogers. Not the altar boys, not you too. Uncle Fred. Now, now, mind you, since many of the seniors are here, it was not seniors. The faculty. No, it wasn't that either. <laughs> and that reminded me of something that I had pulled out of one of those airplane reading guides, you know, that are in front of you and the flight attendants tell you to read and take with you. It had been an article just shortly before that on Fred Rogers. And it was so good that I clipped it out. Now, this is not vandalism because they encourage you to do that. The article goes on to share testimonies of various people of all ages who, who share in the article what Mr. Rogers meant to them, how he helped them out of drugs or depression or family crises, take your pick. Accolade after accolade. But here's the part that I thought was terrific, people. The author of the article says, Fred Rogers doesn't have an easy time dealing with such praise. Listen to this, will you? And then plug it into, you'll never, you'll never wash my feet. Once in his office, he responded to a compliment this way, quote, It's so very hard receiving. When you give something, you're in much greater control. But when you receive something, you're so vulnerable. I think the greatest gift you can give people is an honest receiving of 
what they have to offer. And you know, that's what salvation is, isn't it? Among every other thing that it is, it is a receiving experience. But as many as received him, I wonder, no, it's, I can't, no, it's something that you have to receive, something you have to accept from another. You'll never wash my feet. Here's the second never. The Lord turns to his disciples and speaking to them about what they're going to do as the cross and the crucifixion get near, he says to them, all of you are going to stumble. All of you will be scandalized when I'm nailed to that tree. All, every one of you guys are going to turn chicken and get cold feet, and you're going to run. And you remember what Peter did? Peter stand up, stood up and said, Lord... I need to straighten you out at one point. Perhaps all of my colleagues will stumble. But I never will. Everybody else may forsake you, but I never will. It's the same word. You'll never wash my feet. I'll never forsake you. And you remember, don't you, that Peter was the first one to forsake him. Be careful, seniors, about a grandiose testimony. God grant that it's true. But I want to tell you tonight on the basis of Peter, that a big mouth is not necessarily the best testimony. And I look back to my own graduating class, 1963, from a sister institution. And some who were loudest and most vocal in their determination to follow God, regardless of what everybody else did, in many instances became spiritual casualties. And then here's the third one as I finish. You remember, don't you, that Peter was a Jew? And do you remember that Jews and non-Jews were not terribly fond of each other for the most part? And one of the things the Lord wanted to do in the book of Acts is to bring the Jewish church and the non-Jewish church together, and that's not an easy thing to pull off in any day. 
And the Lord starts it off by bringing together a Roman soldier whose name is Cornelius and a Jewish apostle by the name of Peter. Now that there are very few things that a Jew is as strict about as his or her diet. Certain kinds of things you can eat, certain kinds of things you can't eat. One day, Peter has a vision. He sees a blanket, a sheet being let down from heaven, filled with all sorts of animals and birds. And he hears the voice saying to him, Peter, rise and eat. And do you remember what he said? Two interesting words that are an odd pair. He said, no, Lord. How many of you have ever been in the military and you were given an order and you said, no, sir? And then the voice says, well, why not? What's wrong? And Peter says, I have never. And there's the third never. I've never eaten anything that's unclean. Aren't you proud of me, Lord? God was trying to break down some prejudices and some tunnel vision and lead a child of his into new areas of personal relationships. And he almost allowed a never to come in between it. I was interested to read, not to read, to talk. The three young men, there were four, but I know three of them, who were students here at the college earlier, several years ago. They were students here during some of the mightiest visitations of the Holy Spirit that we've ever had. And they told me, this is the story they told me. Dr. Kinlaw made reference to the fact that often chapels, conferences, private times, you will find individuals praying at this altar. These four students, I know three of them, I don't know who the fourth one is, but these three students, and this is the word they used, I'm not making it, I'm borrowing the, their word. These three students made a covenant with each other. They made a covenant with each other that under no circumstances would they ever come to the altar to pray. We will never come. Can we agree among that? That's a strange never, isn't it? And you know they never did? Four years, to the best of my knowledge, they never did. They never did. At least two of them are in Christian service.